I'd like to begin with two verses from Psalm 43 and then pray those verses into our time together. This is verse three and four. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. We're going to circle back to those verses in a few minutes, but let's pray over them first. So, Father, I ask now that you would fulfill this promise and send your light and send your truth and guide us to your holy hill and to your dwelling, your presence, and let there be such an awakening and such an illumining presence that at your altar, which you set up at Calvary, we might embrace you as our exceeding joy and our God, so that we are forever right with you and forever loving towards people. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So under the banner of this conference of prepared, I want to argue that the key to being prepared for heaven is the same as the key to being prepared for earth. Or, to put it another way, I want to argue that the key for experiencing forgiveness from God is the same key for experiencing fruitfulness in life, in your calling. Or, to say it another way, I want to argue that the key to pardon for sin is the same key for experiencing power over sin. Or, if you like theological language, I want to argue that the key to justification is the same key that you use for sanctification. So that's what I'm going to argue. And I'm going to argue that the lens through which you can see that, that those, those two keys are one key, the lens through which you can see that is Christian hedonism. H-E-D-O-N-I-S-M. Hedonism. Which is what I've given my life to. So, we have to explain what that is and then use it as a lens to understand why the same key that makes you right with God makes you powerful in the killing of sin and the doing of love. And the reason this matters is because 
my guess is that even though this is a very self-selecting group, some of you have used the wrong key to get right with God and the wrong key to try to kill sin and do righteousness. And that would be a frightening thing. And I hope that if that's the case, you would spot it and it would change for you. So let's talk about Christian hedonism and then put it over the reality of justification and the reality of sanctification, or you might say wise, loving, effective financial counsel and discover what this is and how it works. This year marks the 50th anniversary of two of the most important events of my life. 50 years married to Noel and 50 years since I became a Christian hedonist. And probably the best way for me to give an illustration of what I mean by Christian hedonism is to use my marriage. But before I do that, I want to put a biblical context behind it and help you know precisely what I mean when I say Christian hedonism. So now we're circling back to Psalm 43, verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Now I would say from Psalm 43, verse 4, that authentic praise is an expression of our experience of God as our exceeding joy. So praise is not, <clears throat> praise is not the movement of your vocal cords and your lips stating God's worth or even stating your belief that he is worthy. But rather, it is the expression of your heart's experiencing of him as your exceeding joy. Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So you can take praise on your lips, words that are appropriate to God's infinite worth and have it mean nothing, zero, vain. So worship is not what happens on Sunday morning out of mouths of people who do not find God to be their exceeding joy. 
their supreme value and treasure. Worship is empty when it is not the experience of joy. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Now we know what praise is and was designed to be by God. Praise is designed by God to be the means by which he's magnified, glorified, shown to be great. That's what praise is. It's the means by which we make much of God, magnify God, glorify God. That's what praise is. To praise God is to make much of him. I don't think it's controversial to say that, but what's controversial is that the connection between praise that's authentic and joy in the heart is necessary. There is no authentic praise with the lips where there is not authentic exceeding joy in God as our supreme value in the heart. That's controversial. And the reason it's controversial is because it is so devastating and wonderful. It's devastating because you may have found or know people in your family perhaps, you have found that you can go through the motions of praising God when in fact you don't have God as your exceeding joy. And then you hear Jesus say over your life, that's nothing, it's zero, it's vain, it's empty and you are devastated. Going to church all this time, saying all the right things. And the heart is far from God. He's not your supreme treasure. He's not your exceeding joy. And therefore, you hear a word like this, and it's devastating. But on the other side of devastation and repentance, this is the most wonderful word in the world. I mean, think of it. To be told that God is praised by your being happy in him that God is glorified because you're glad in him. This is no big performance. <laughs> you're, not, you're not being asked to be a hero. You're being asked to be happy in God as your supreme and exceeding joy and treasure. This is no big work that we are being required to do in order to praise and magnify and glorify God. 
Wonderful, not just devastating. God's purpose is to be glorified in the world, and now we discover that we fulfill that purpose by being satisfied in Him. Fifty years ago, that was utterly life-changing for me to discover that God's zeal for his glory and my longing to be happy were not at odds, but were one. Was a glorious discovery. So the summary of Christian hedonism is God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Which carries this radical implication. The pursuit of your deepest and longest happiness is not optional, but mandatory. Because you can't glorify God without it. You can't glorify God from your heart if your heart is not satisfied in God. It cannot be done. And therefore the mandate to pursue your deepest and longest happiness is not optional. It's necessary for your life, your eternity. Now, there is such a thing as mere duty religion, and Christian hedonism says it's over. Willpower religion is over. Duty religion is over because it's zero. We can perform many tasks without being happy in God. And he is not honored by them. It isn't Christianity. Which is why over and over and over in the Bible we are commanded, delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37, 4. Be glad in the Lord, Psalm 32, 11. Rejoice in the Lord, Philippians 3, 1. Why? Because God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him and the glorification of God is the purpose of the universe. Isaiah 43, 7, you were created for his glory. And therefore he commands you over and over again, be glad in the Lord because God is most glorified in your gladness in him. Now, I don't know if you have thought that way when reading your Bible. I don't know if you are already a Christian hedonist without the label. And I really don't care at all about whether you use the label. You can forget it as soon as we're done here as far as I'm concerned. I care infinitely if a finite being can care infinitely that you grasp 
and love the reality. But even if you have not read the Bible that way and seen that God in being your exceeding joy is magnified through that, even if you haven't seen that, you have all seen it and know it intuitively. And that's where my illustration with my marriage comes in because I will show you especially those of you who have experienced this maybe in a planning something special with your spouse, I'll show you that you already know and believe the core truth of Christian hedonism. So I'm going to ask you to go forward to December 21 with me, and we're going to, we're going to reenact or we're going to enact a little scene here. 50th anniversary this December 21. And I am going to show up at the front door by surprise, coming home early. I'm going to have behind my back, if I can manage it, 50 red roses. Pricey. <laughs> and I'm going to ring my own doorbell, which I never do. Okay? So here we go. It's, it's bitter cold, by the way. It was five degrees when I left this morning. It will be December 21. So this is crazy. What are you doing out there? This is your house. Just walk in. Ding dong. She, she opens the door. All the kids are gone, by the way. They live all over the place. Um, just Noel and me in this big house. Ding dong. Opens the door. Looks surprised. And I pull this mammoth bouquet out, and I say, happy anniversary, Noel. And like she does, she laughs out loud. She says, oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you go to so much trouble? Now, suppose at that moment, I got a noble look on my face and lifted my hand and said, it's my duty. <laughs> I read the manual. This is what good husbands do on their anniversary. That's the wrong answer. <laughs> but you need to think very deeply now why you laugh at duty. Duty's not an evil thing, and you're laughing at it. And you should be. Why? Let's, let's rerun the, the video, and uh, I'll try to give the right answer this time. Ding dong. Happy anniversary, Noel. Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why'd you go to so much trouble? Well, I can't help myself because Nothing makes me happier than buying roses for you. And by the way, why don't you go get something really nice on because I've got a plan for tonight because there's nothing I'd rather do than spend the evening with you. Do you think that Noel at that moment would say, nothing makes you happier. Nothing makes you happier than to spend the evening with me. Why don't you think about me sometime and my happiness? 
Why would she not say that? I mean, she's right. That's what I said. Nothing makes me happier than to buy roses for you. Nothing makes me happier than to spend the evening with you. I'm totally into my happiness tonight. Why would she not hear arrogant, self-centered, self-exalting, selfish, me-centered John Piper and his Christian hedonism junk? Why? Why? And you all know why. You know exactly why. She is glorified in me when I am satisfied in her. She is honored when she has become my treasure and satisfies me. She's honored, she's glorified, she's magnified, she's made much of to the degree that she is my exceeding joy. And there's nothing I'd rather do than spend the evening with her you know this. This is not some strange, weird thing John Piper concocted. All I do with Christian hedonism is say, that's the principle at the core of the universe. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And if you try to turn this universe into a duty religion, you will be miserable and God will be dishonored. The world is in a very sad, sad condition because of that kind of effort. What the Bible shows is that this vertical Christian hedonism, God most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him, that vertical Christian hedonism spills over in a horizontal Christian hedonism that results in loving people. This is not simply us and God, but people being loved. When God becomes your all-satisfying treasure and your exceeding joy, there is in the very nature of joy in God Joy in the kind of God who sends his son into the world to bear the sins of his enemies. When that kind of God is your exceeding joy, because that's the way he is, there is something about the nature of joy in God like that which expands. It's built in that this joy must increase by drawing others into it. It cannot, it absolutely cannot remain isolated. It is expansive. There's a pressure, a happy 
pressure on the inside of this joy in this kind of God that will get others into it, even if it costs us our life to get them in. Which is no contradiction, right? Because the Psalm 63.3 says, the steadfast love of the Lord is, tell me, better than life. Well, of course you're going to choose to die. If you could have his steadfast love forever, and if my dying could get you into my joy, my joy would be bigger forever. That's the nature of finding God to be your exceeding joy. Which means that when vertical hedonism is in operation and God is being glorified by our being satisfied in him, there is this spillover effect onto other people. We'll come back to a beautiful biblical illustration of that in just a moment. Now, that's my effort to explain Christian hedonism. God most glorified in you because you are most satisfied in him. He has become your exceeding joy. This is an expansive joy that spills over into meeting the needs of other people so that they are drawn into, included in your joy in God so that in their joy in God, yours in God is bigger. That's Christian hedonism. Now, with that as the lens, we're going to try to ask the question, what's the key to justification? Being declared just and right in the presence of God as a sinner? And what's the key to sanctification? Being progressively made more and more righteous, more and more fruitful, more and more loving, more and more effective in your counsel of other people's use of their money? And will this lens of Christian hedonism cause us to see those two keys are one? That's where we are now in the development of the argument. And I suppose you know as well as I do, since this is a, a remarkable group in that regard, that one of the most precious truths in the Bible is that we are justified by faith alone apart from works of the law, right? All of us are guilty. All of us are sinners. I love the simple gospel of Billy Graham. I loved it. Love it to this day. The Bible says <laughs> we're all sinners. We're all under judgment. We're all bound for perishing. And God in his mercy before the world began, planned to send his son into the world to intervene and do what we could never do. We could never make ourselves innocent before God. God steps in through Jesus and he bears sin. And he provides righteousness. And then Billy was a consummate example of inviting people in through faith alone. So that's 
The biblical answer to how you get justified is by faith alone. Listen to this, Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's really clear. Or the short version, Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That was the great rediscovery of the Reformation 500 years ago that had become so obscured by the conflation of sanctification and justification in Roman Catholic theology. No. We are justified not by becoming good people. We can become good people precisely because we're already justified and we're justified in the twinkling of an eye by faith alone. That's what the Bible teaches about how we get justified. Now, here's the problem. The reformers taught very clearly properly, biblically, when Roman Catholics said, whoa, 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 if you teach justification, being set right, being accepted, being forgiven, in the twinkling of an eye, by faith alone, why won't people just go on living like the devil? And they answered, the faith that justifies, justifies alone. But the faith that justifies is never alone, but is always accompanied by other graces and results in sanctification. That's what they argued, and they're right. The faith that justifies is faith alone that justifies. But it never stays alone. It is followed by good works. James said so clearly, faith without works is dead. So justified by faith, and yet that faith never remains alone. Blood-bought Hope of heaven will always be accompanied by spirit-wrought holiness on earth. They taught that. The Bible teaches that. But here's the problem. In my study and enjoyment of the Reformers and their heirs in the Puritans and their heirs in the more modern expressions of that theology... They did not very often give attention to clarifying why is it that justifying faith always bears the fruit 
of a sanctified life. Why? Of course, they said the Holy Spirit bears the fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. They knew the Holy Spirit had come into our life when we were justified. Now the Holy Spirit is doing this. But, but that doesn't explain what's going on in here. What's going on in here? I need to know in order to lean in. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I need to know what my leaning into this process is. What does it look like? How does it work? I don't want to mess this up. And, and I don't find very much help in explaining what is it about justifying faith that is of such a nature that it inevitably gives rise to love for people and the killing of sin. My answer is the lens of Christian hedonism put over that problem gives the answer and in giving the answer shows how the key to justification and the key to sanctification are one. So that's where we are now. Let's start with a, in this part with a definition of faith. And I think I can give you a definition of faith that at one level we're just all going to be happy with. I would define faith in Jesus as a receiving of Jesus. You heard Billy say it. Receiving. Receive Christ. John 1.11 is the place where believing and receiving are made identical. Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, comma, who believed in his name, comma, he gave the right to become the children of God. Paraphrase. But to all who did receive him, that is, who did believe in his name, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. So justifying faith Faith that grafts you into Jesus so that his righteousness counts for you and his covering of sin counts for you. That faith, that believing is a receiving of Jesus. Now here's what Christian hedonism does. Christian hedonism says, excuse me, what do you mean receive? It will not settle for just words. I want to know, tell me what you're talking about. Tell me what this is like in my head, in my heart. What does it mean to receive Jesus? Is it like receiving a blow on the face? Well, no. Well, you said receive. Is it like receiving a gift you need but don't want? But I'll take it. Since I need it, but I don't want it. Well, 
Is it like receiving help from someone you're so glad to receive and you don't like the person who's giving it? Is that receiving Jesus? I want your salvation. I want your forgiveness. I want out of hell. I want into heaven. I want health, wealth, and prosperity. You, you can be absent. Is that receiving Jesus? Is it like receiving a package from a postman? You don't even know him. Don't even want to know him. But the package, yay, Amazon. I want this package. I don't give a hoot who brought it. Christian hedonism presses in to this experience of believing and receiving and insists, I got to know, what is that? What do you mean, receive Jesus? Because they're, Christian hedonism and you know that in the Bible there are lots of ways to believe and lots of ways to receive that are not saving I've got to know what's the difference between saving believing and unsaving believing and saving receiving and unsaving receiving. For example, John 6, they were so eager to receive him and make him king and he walked away, wanted nothing to do with their desire to receive him and make him king. Or John 7, his brothers believed that he was a miracle worker and said, come on, go up to Jerusalem and do your works. And John comments, they did not believe on him. Or John 2, many believed on Jesus and he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. This is not saving believing. And Simon, Acts chapter 8, oh, I want the Holy Spirit. Whoa, you men are powerful. I will pay you for this. And you know what Peter said to him, excuse the language, you and your money can go to hell. That is not a receiving of the Holy Spirit that has any saving quality to it. This is not simple, folks. So much language is bandied about in the church today. and People just hear it go in and out. What do you mean? Would you please help me know what it is to receive Jesus so that it is a justifying receiving? Would you please help me? And my answer is, based on what we've seen so far, is that Christian hedonism presses in to the actual experience of receiving until it discerns what this receiving really is. And what it finds in the Bible is that receiving Christ is a saving receiving if Jesus is received not only as a rescuer and a master but also as a treasure, a supreme treasure, an all-satisfying treasure. You think you can have Jesus? You think you can receive Jesus in a justifying, saving way because he's 
rescuing you from what you don't want to experience and he's telling you what you ought to do and you're doing your daredevil best to do it and he's not your treasure. He's not your exceeding joy. No way. That is not saving faith. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven. It's all you kingdom advisors. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found. This is describing the encounter with the king. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, key phrase, in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has to get that field. Or Matthew 10, 37, Jesus saying, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's not duty. That's not obedience. That's the dearest affections on the planet becoming the measure by which we are his. And if son, daughter, mother, father, or anything else in all creation is more precious to us than Jesus, we don't have saving faith. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In other words, receiving Christ in a saving way means preferring Christ over all persons and all things. It means desiring him, not just what he can do for you, what he is. It means being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. We don't receive Jesus in a saving way when we receive him as a ticket. Out of hell, into heaven. He's not a ticket. He's a treasure. He's not a ticket to heaven. He's heaven. He's what makes heaven, heaven. It's a devastating question. When I go around and ask groups, what if you could go to heaven someday and you would have perfect health, perfect mental presence, no depression anymore, all the friends you want there, every kind of leisure you can imagine, just Jesus is not there. Would that be okay? And it's scary how many feel if they won't say kind of what I thought heaven was. It's not what heaven is. Jesus is heaven. If you are trying to receive Jesus 
as a way to get what you want that's not him, you're not receiving Jesus, you're using Jesus. Now, I wonder if you see why such faith, which alone justifies, unites us to Christ so that we are right with God, why that same faith is the power that kills sin, necessarily. The power that releases love, necessarily. Why is that? Well, let's ask this. Why do you sin? If you want to know, how, how, how do you, what are the dynamics that kill sin and create love? You should ask yourself, why do I sin? And I'll tell you why you sin. Because sin makes promises to you. And you believe them. Sin promises you. Promises your children. Promises your clients. Sin promises them. What I have to offer, I'm sin now talking. What sin has to offer is better more satisfying, more enjoyable, more hope-giving than Christ. The fleeting pleasures, that's what they're called in Hebrews eleven twenty-five. The fleeting pleasures of sin, sin promises to be better, longer, deeper, sweeter, more satisfying. And to the degree that we are deceived by those promises, we sin. Nobody sins out of duty, right? Nobody gets up in the morning and says, got an obligation, I got to sin some today. <laughs> no, nobody sins out of duty. We sin out of pleasure seeking. And the only reason we opt for a sinful action is because the devil and our own nature has promised us that action will produce pleasure, satisfaction, fame, whatever, you, whatever your idol happens to be, it will succeed. The only way the power of sin can be broken is by the presence and the promise of a superior pleasure. Yes, I know there is a willpower path to holiness. But to the degree that it succeeds, it fails. Because with every sin that you conquer by willpower, seven devils of self-righteousness come in. And take its place. Willpower conquering of sin is not a conquering of sin. It's an exaltation of self. There is one way to conquer the promises of the pleasures of sin. And that is with the power of a superior pleasure. And his name is Jesus and the way he is experienced is called 
saving faith. That's what faith is. It is a receiving of Jesus as all-satisfying treasure. And the reason we have had historically such a hard time figuring out how do you get right with God over here and some different way, figure out how to kill sin and do love over here when in fact Christian hedonism shows through its lens saving faith is of such a nature as to be so satisfied in Jesus, it is the power that makes sin lose its compelling force. That faith also overflows in in generosity. So I'm shifting now from how does this being satisfied in Jesus kill sin? I'm shifting now to, and we're almost done, how does it produce love? Because Christian ethics is not about negation mainly. Don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. That's a good start. But it is be holy, be righteous, be good, be loving towards your enemies, be willing to lay down your life for your enemies, make Jesus shine in the valuing of him that is so strong you can lay down your life for others. And the text that I referred to a minute ago as being the most beautiful biblical illustration I know for how this works, how does being satisfied in God produce love, goes like this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. The Macedonians are being praised by Paul in a severe test of affliction. So, a severe test of affliction. They're not comfortable and they're not secure. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, so they're not rich. So affliction, poverty, their abundance of joy, it says, has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Where did generosity come from? didn't come from comfort, it didn't come from security, and it didn't come from wealth. Most rich people are way less generous than poor people, percentage-wise. You know that. It came from being satisfied in God. Verse 1 says, the grace of God has been poured out in Macedonia. Their sins are forgiven. Their guilt is gone. Their condemnation is removed. They've been justified. They've been adopted into the everlasting family of God. And these people are so unbelievably thrilled in the God who saved them that the effect is take our money to Jerusalem and help the poor. That's where love comes from. So, in a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty, their abundance of joy in God, in Christ, overflowed in a wealth 
of generosity. So I conclude. Once Christ has paid the price for sin, and once Christ has provided the righteousness that we need on the cross and in his perfect life, there is one means. So he's provided the absolutely unshakable ground and foundation for my being forgiven and my being declared righteous. Once that foundation is laid, there is one means for how I get right with God on that basis. And there is one means for killing sin and loving people. And those two means are the same. Namely, receiving and enjoying Jesus as our all-satisfying treasure. Let's pray. So Lord, I pray that we would receive over and over again, Jesus. That tonight as we go to bed, we would get on our knees, lay our hands on the mattress, palms up, and say again, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, I enjoy you as my supreme treasure. And wherever I'm living out of sync with that, oh God, have mercy upon me. Unify my life so that the faith that justifies and the faith that sanctifies will be one faith because it is a receiving of Jesus, not only a savior, not only as Lord, but as the all-satisfying treasure of my life. In his name I pray, amen.